Well, last weekend, we began our series on the minor prophets who are anything but minor voices to the people of God. We began with the story of Hosea. And you might like to know that in response to the story of Hosea, 25 people gave their heart to Christ across four services last weekend. I would call that a good weekend in the kingdom of God. Well, today we're looking at the next minor prophet. His name is Joel. But we won't be looking at his story because the truth is we know virtually nothing about the prophet Joel and his story. So we'll be left to look at his words. And I think Joel's okay with that because Joel's passion was to promote God, not promote himself. Now, obviously, we're not going to unpack all of Joel's words. That would literally take several months. Instead, we're going to focus on a very small sample, 13 words to be exact, 13 words that offer incredible hope to anybody who has ever experienced loss in their life because of sin. And if Scripture is to be believed, that's everybody in the room. For all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory, and sin always brings personal loss, whether it's our sin or the sin of somebody else against us. Now, Joel's name means Jehovah is God. And ironically enough, he was called to minister to a people who had essentially forgotten that fact. Like Hosea, he was called to minister to the ancient nation of Israel when they were living in spiritual rebellion against God. They weren't slightly out of tune with God. They were singing a different tune altogether. And to outline Joel's prophecy very briefly, he speaks about three judgments. Two of them are now well in the past, one still out there ahead of us. The first judgment was a plague of locusts that was unfolding when Joel began his prophecy. Think of it as God's current judgment at that time, his current judgment on Israel's current sin. The next judgment that Joel predicted would be a few years later, knowing Israel's tendency to relapse into spiritual rebellion, he prophesied a coming judgment under the hand of the empire of Assyria. And then the third judgment is still out ahead of us. This hasn't unfolded yet. And unlike the first two judgments, it will not be a judgment against Israel. It will be a judgment against the nations that in the future will seek to destroy Israel in an ultimate expression of rebellion against Israel's God. And that judgment will occur just prior to Jesus' return. So to summarize the book of Joel, Joel describes how God judged his own people when they betrayed him and how he will one day judge the nations who refuse him. So that's the view from 30,000 feet. Now let's focus down on those 13 words. They're found in Joel's second chapter, the 25th verse. God said, and I will restore to you the years that the locust has eaten. I've entitled this teaching an act of God. Let's look to the Lord together in prayer. Father, in these coming moments, by your Spirit, just as you enabled Joel to speak, 
faithfully and prophetically to his generation. Enable me to speak to my generation and to this assembly of your people and those who are seeking you. I pray that your spirit would enable all of us to clearly understand your heart as it is revealed in Joel's words. And I pray that we would respond to your heart with love and devotion and obedience. And as always, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. And as we study God's Word together to this morning, may the Lord be with you. I'm assuming all of you are familiar with the term an act of God. It's generally used in the insurance industry to describe a catastrophic event that isn't covered. <laughs> and it isn't covered because humanity can't control it and humanity can't prevent it. When it happens, no human being is culpable. We use the term an act of God for things like earthquakes, tsunamis, forest fires, floods, and tornadoes. Now the term an act of God used by the insurance industry isn't intended as a theological statement. Atheists use that term. But it does highlight, highlight excuse me, a fundamental spiritual reality. It reminds us that despite our multiplied scientific advances, we simply cannot control everything that God has created. There are forces at work in the universe that are much, much bigger than us. Now that being said, as a follower of Jesus, I don't much care for the term an act of God because it seems to imply that every catastrophe should be laid at God's doorstep, that he's the one to blame. And that's simply not true. Amen. Scripture makes it clear that our current situation is not what God created or what God intended. At creation, God called humanity to humbly, wisely, and unselfishly manage, steward, the natural realm, receiving it as both an incredible blessing and a sacred responsibility. But in the aftermath of Adam and Eve's misguided rebellion, there is much about God's creation that now refuses to be managed. Many of the very good things God created are now not so very good. The creation is filled with death and disease, parasites and predators, catastrophes and corruption, entropy and extinction. And it's all because the effects of sin aren't confined to the human heart and human society. Creation has also been compromised. Sin is like a cancer. It always spreads. It metastasizes to other areas of the human experience. And the Apostle Paul made that clear in his letter to the church in Rome. He said the creation is imprisoned. It's in bondage to decay. And then in human terms, he said the creation groans 
for its day of redemption, the day it will be restored to its original beauty, its original order, its original tranquility. But until that day, the creation will not and cannot function as God intended. And so for that reason, not every act of God is an act of God. Most natural catastrophes are just that. They are natural catastrophes. The indirect but inevitable consequence of humanity's sin and rebellion. But that being said, there are times when a catastrophe is truly an act of God. Because God can still manage what we cannot. There are times when God either withdraws his hand of prevention and protection or literally orchestrates a calamity as a fitting response to human rebellion. And I use the word fitting intentionally. Think of these calamities much like a consequence-filled, difficult, sharp-edged intervention with a family member who is in bondage to addiction. Those are hard, hard moments. And if you've ever been through one of those with a family member, you know it is not an expression of your hatred. It is not an expression of your anger. It is an expression of your love. It's intended to bring somebody to their senses. And God often permits and orchestrates calamities to bring the human race to their senses as an act of his love. Now, Joel made it clear that's precisely what was going down with the locust plague in Israel. God was using that plague to discipline a rebellious people. And that's why Joel referred to the locusts as God's army. Now, individually, a locust doesn't pose any threat. If you aren't squeamish, you could crush one in your hand. It would leave a bit of a mess, but you could crush one in your hand. But you put millions of locusts together in a locust plague and nothing can resist them. Few things in nature are more devastating than a locust plague. When you go home, Google it and find some pictures of what happens. They sweep across a nation like a living, breathing tsunami. Wave after wave after wave of insects consuming every piece of green living vegetation in their path and even stripping the bark from the trees. You literally have to see the devastation to believe it. They make everything desolate. In their wake, they leave famine and disease and starvation. And resisting them is they don't fear anything, they don't stop for anything, and they invade everything. If you kill 100,000, a million more walk across the carcasses as they continue pressing forward. And that's what was happening in Israel. And as it unfolded, the nation was being decimated. And God used that as a powerful object lesson to remind them that once sin is unleashed, its devastating effects are not easily limited. Amen. That's an important truth because we like to tell ourselves otherwise. 
We like to tell ourselves, well, I can compartmentalize this sin and just keep it over here in the corner of my life without it affecting the rest of my life. We tell ourselves that, and there's a voice that tells us that, the liar, the father of lies. We act as if we can draw a spiritual line in the sand and say to a sin, now you stay over here, but don't you ever cross that line and affect this aspect of my life. But that doesn't work any more than standing in front of a horde of locusts and saying, all right, let's stop right here. It has never worked that way. It will never work that way. You see, sin is extremely dangerous. If you unleash it in your life, it will have devastating effects that you cannot imagine. So if you struggle with the idea of a loving God fighting against his own people, you've probably never had a family member in addiction. And if you've had a family member in addiction, you know what it is to fight against somebody that you love. And you know the point of the fight is not to destroy the person, but to deliver the person. And that's why in his second chapter, Joel makes it clear that God's goal in fighting his people is never their destruction, it's always their restoration. In a very real sense, when God wins, we win. And if God loses, we lose. And that's why Joel's message was not entirely locusts and gloom and doom. It wasn't even primarily locusts and doom and gloom. It was primarily a message of mercy and grace and hope and forgiveness. Joel gave voice to God's loving petitions, God's gracious promises, and he reminded his audience that God often appeals to straying hearts in what we call the 11th hour, when disaster is right on the horizon, before the clock strikes midnight. When you indulge a sin and it devastates your life and you get to the place where it looks like everything is going to go south, when you're standing at that precipice, God is there with you offering you mercy. Now, again, we're prone to assume the opposite. We're prone to think, well, I've been in this mess so long long time ago God abandoned me he got tired of my rebellious act he got tired of my empty promises he doesn't want to hear SOS same old sin every day but the reality is otherwise God is the God of 11th hour grace at 1159 when the clock is about to strike midnight he will be there appealing to you with his love and with his truth and that's why when you come to the end of yourself, you may be closer to God than ever before. When you come to the end of yourself, you may be closer to God than ever before. And that's why Joel's declarations of judgment are regularly interrupted by God's gracious invitations and promises. And all of them, all of them, are amazing, but none more amazing than our 13 words. God said, I can restore what the locust has devoured. Remember, once the locusts have moved on, nothing is left. 
It's similar to a nuclear explosion. Every living thing is gone. And then as if to emphasize the point, after he said, I can restore what the locust has devoured, he talked about the four stages that locusts proceed through, from the larval stage to the mature adult stage. Each one of them consumes a portion of the land. Then the next stage consumes something more, the next something more, until absolutely everything is gone. And God said when everything has been destroyed, when nothing is left, I can restore everything back to what it was previously. And he's giving us a sobering description of how the soul that embraces sin is stripped of everything valuable until nothing is left, but how our God can and will restore everything. Everything. Now think of what that means. When a past or present sin in your life whether it's your sin or someone's sin against you, has taken up residence in your soul and gradually stripped you of your dignity and your purpose and your hope and your significance and your future. When pain and disappointment come wave after wave after wave after wave with no break on the horizon and no end in sight. When everywhere you look within yourself, you see emptiness and decay and death and devastation. When your soul is hungering, when you're having a famine of courage, when your heart is thirsting for joy but dry, God is not only able to restore everything, he is eager to restore everything. When you refuse God's love, refuse God's ways, refuse God's commandments, when you doubt God's faithfulness, doubt God's power, doubt God's promises, when you let the idols of culture set your agenda, your priorities, and your loyalties, when you opt for lust rather than love, when you value possessions more than people, when you pursue cheap trinkets rather than eternal treasures, when you water that root of bitterness until the mature plant suffocates all your joy, when you inhale prejudice and exhale hate, when you look all about you and all the good has been stripped away, God is able to restore what the locust has devoured. When someone sins against you, when you're a victim of rape, a victim of abuse, a victim of neglect, when the soul-crushing weight of shame sits on you, leaving you a prisoner inside your own skin, when the biting words of a parent suffocate your confidence, lower your expectations. When a parent who was physically missing when you were growing up and is now emotionally present every day that you live. When bigotry leaves you emotionally hamstrung. When bullying leaves you emotionally shell-shocked. When poverty ravages, ravages the little bit of hope that you can muster. God is able to restore what the locust has devoured. Now, Joel made that incredible, incredible announcement against the backdrop of a catastrophe. And as he did, he didn't gloss over the devastation Israel was facing and would face again. He described it in graphic 
detail. Why? Because if we diminish the horror of evil, we ultimately diminish the goodness of God. Would you read that aloud with me? If we diminish the horror of evil, we ultimately diminish the goodness of God. See, good and evil exist in the universe as polar opposites. And if we pretend that the evil isn't dark, then it lessens the beauty of the light. When we make little of sin, we end up with a very little God. When we make sin small, we make salvation insignificant. We reduce God to just another celebrity speaker at a rally for justice and human rights. And he is so much more than that. See, whenever churches in an attempt to reach people and be relevant redefine sin as virtue and don't describe the awfulness and the horror of sin, they betray their people. They lose those people, and they make grace something far less than amazing. If sin is of little consequence, the cross was a colossal waste of time. It took the cross of Christ to make your restoration possible. Perhaps now you see why I don't particularly like the way an act of God is currently used because it limits the activities of God to the locus. It forgets the cross was an act of God. The resurrection was an act of God. Forgiveness is an act of God. Grace is an act of God. Mercy is an act of God. Salvation is an act of God. The church is an act of God. The restoration of devastated souls is an act of God. And the coming resurrection will be an act of God. And the final judgment will be an act of God. And the restoration of this groaning creation to its original beauty and tranquility will be an act of God. And God's people will live upon this earth in its restored beauty, managing it as we were always intended to, as both a blessing and a sacred responsibility. We're not going to be floating on clouds, squeezing Charmin bathroom tissue, playing harps. We're got to be here, our feet firmly planted upon the ground, but that ground's got to be restored. It's beyond imagination. God said, you can't even conceive of the things I have prepared for you. And that's all an act of God. Now, whenever Israel heard God's offer, I have a hunch they thought to themselves, well, God is able, but we're not. Because that's often what we say to ourselves. Oh, I believe God can, but I don't think I can. I believe if I would move, he would meet me, but I don't think I can move. So it's no coincidence that the same prophet who wrote about the locusts was the prophet who was given the privilege of prophesying the outpouring of the Holy Spirit 
on the day of Pentecost. Because it was Joel who said, there's coming a day when God will pour out his spirit upon all flesh. And on the day of Pentecost, Peter quoted Joel and said, this is that. This is exactly what Joel prophesied centuries ago. Why are those two things intertwined, the locust and the Holy Spirit? Because the restoration that God offers is carried out by the Holy Spirit. You don't have to be up to it. He's up to it. This is not about what you can do to change your life because I'll save you a lot of time. You can't do anything to change your life. If you could have changed your life, you would have changed it a long time ago. There's nothing more pathetic than somebody who goes on and on and on and on in bondage and addiction. But I can change my life. No, you can't. No, you can't. If you could, you would. The fact that you didn't shows you can't. But it's not about you doing it. It's about the Spirit of God doing it. The Spirit who can restore what the locust has devoured. In the insurance world, an act of God is a random event that isn't covered. But in the spiritual realm, none of God's acts are random. And for those who are in Christ, every sin is covered. God can destroy what the locust has devoured. Now, we've entitled this series, Jesus at the Intersection, the intersection of culture and faith. When you stand at that intersection, which we do every day that we live, culture has nothing to offer you but locusts. They may look small to begin with, but once unleashed, they will destroy everything in your life. Some of you probably know a Christian brother or sister who made a compromise sometime in the past, and today their life is a pale reflection of what it once was because they unleashed a force that destroyed everything. There are people who used to be our great examples and now they are our great warnings. When you stand at the intersection, culture offers you locusts. They may look really nice in the commercials, but once they're unleashed, they'll destroy everything. Jesus, in contrast, offers you restoration. Jesus stands there even at 1159 and says, I am able to restore what the locust has devoured. You don't have to live with pain as your permanent address. You don't have to live with insecurity as your permanent address. You don't have to live with bitterness as your permanent address. You don't have to accept emptiness as your destiny. I can restore what the locust has devoured. I can restore what the locust has devoured. If you don't know God, you see why those of us who do love him? As we close this service, I'm going to do what I did in the previous two services. If you have experienced devastation in some area of your life, either because of your own sin or the sin of others, and today you would like to believe God for the restoration of that which the locust has devoured, 
your hopes, your dreams, your confidence, your joy, your family relationship. If you want to believe God for the restoration, I'm going to ask you to stand as a way of indicating that so that I can pray for you. And I'm going to pray for those who have been wounded by their own sin, and I'm going to pray for those who have been wounded by the sins of others. And since everybody in the room has been wounded by some sin at some time, don't be embarrassed to stand. Uh, this is a recovery meeting. This is not a museum for perfect people or none of us would be here. So if you'd like prayer today, stand. Let this be a divine moment, a direct response to God's truth. And if you don't feel the need to stand, don't feel pressured to. Just rejoice that God has restored what the locust has devoured. Now receive this prayer. Father, I pray for those who by standing are humbly acknowledging that they have experienced loss and devastation because of their own sin. I pray in their case that you would help them to acknowledge and confess that sin. Confession is just agreeing with you. Help them to confess that sin right now. By standing, they're already doing so. Help them to repent of it, to turn from it, and then help them to ask you to not only restore them, but to show them a better way to address that human need that the locust could never address. Lord, when we sin, we're just looking to unnatural ways to have our needs met. Help those who have been doing that to see your alternative way of meeting that need. And then help them to believe you for the work of the Holy Spirit in the days ahead, restoring them. And I would speak their restoration in the authority of Christ. And then, Father, for those who have been deeply wounded by the sins of others, I pray you would help them to forgive because the energy employed in holding on to that offense is not available to them for restoration. Help them to forgive, realizing that when we forgive another, we set a captive free and discover the captive was us. Help them to forgive, knowing that the person who did evil against them was not their ultimate enemy, but yet another victim of our true shared enemy. And then, forgiving, as you have forgiven us, set their hearts free to receive new horizons, new confidence, new joy, new blessing, new expectation. Father, I would just speak blessing where the locust has devoured. Let the dead plant spring to life once again in their life and help them when they go from this place today to know that while they're going to take baby steps and then bigger steps they are now headed in the right direction and you are restoring what the locust has devoured and jesus we thank you for that act of god on the cross and in the resurrection that made our restoration possible and made it possible for your church to tell any devastated heart god is able god is able god is able god is willing god is willing god is willing 
God loves you. God wants to restore you. God wants to restore what the locust has devoured. What a privilege we have in a world of snarky comments, hateful posts. We have the privilege of declaring that good news. So, Father, I thank you in advance for what you're doing in these hearts. And I praise you in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. And let's celebrate the goodness of God.